the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. You can follow the show at danproftshow.com. Podcasts are located on that website as well as on iTunes and Spotify. You can follow us on social media at Dan Prof Show, both on Facebook, Twitter, at Prof Dan on Instagram. We begin this evening by uh, talking about the protesters. President Trump was asked to address the protesters at a briefing, and he had uh, this to say. People want to get back to work. They got to make a living. They have to take care of their family. They don't want to do this. It's a... You know, unfortunate, maybe, one way or the other. Both are unfortunate. Both are unfortunate. But you have a lot of people out there that are anxious to get back. Some governors are uh, moving in the direction of trying to allay that anxiety. Uh, Georgia, South Carolina, Tennessee. Uh, I said on this show weeks back, it was governors that started the dominoes rolling towards the great American shutdown. Now it will be governors one, two, three at a time, who begin the dominoes falling back in the other direction towards a phased reopening. Of course, at the the front of the the line right now is Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. And this is he is the subject of all sorts of op-eds from Beltway news outlets about the dangerous thing that he's doing by beginning this phased in reopening of portions of Georgia's economy. Of course, the Beltway media is amplifying mayors who don't want him to do this phase reopening. It's interesting. There's not as many questions about Jared Polis, Democrat out in Colorado, who's doing the same thing. But I digress. Brian Kemp was on with Martha McCallum on Fox yesterday on Tuesday, and he uh, explained what he's doing and the basis for it. The mayor and I have a great relationship. She's doing a working very hard, just like all local elected officials are, to protect their population. I'm doing the same thing. Uh, we've worked together on a lot of things. Uh, you know, I've heard comments about this issue, and you know, I've certainly had a lot of praise and a lot of criticism. But we're taking a measured step. I would urge people to really look at the guidance that we're going to be putting out the rest of the week. You know, I announced this on Monday, so we can have time to educate the public and the business owners, that this is just not handing them the keys back to go back to where we were. This is a measured approach with a lot of different requirements and guidance that we're going to be putting out. And I'm very confident of that step. It was done in conjunction with public health officials officials based on the data that we're seeing in our state and the gateways to the phase one part of the president's plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, the She that uh, Governor Kemp was referring to, the mayor of Atlanta, who's been critical. Okay, fine understand. And remember, this is uh, not mandatory like the shutdown. This is voluntary if you want to open, if you want to participate, if your employees want to come back to work, if your customers want to patronize your business. And then the regulations in place, I believe we mentioned on the show uh, yesterday, 
like, for example, employers taking the temperature of their employees and the social distancing protocols and so forth. Does Brian Kemp and what he described and what you now know, if you didn't already, about uh, what he's proposed, what he's going to do starting this coming Monday in Georgia, does that sound like a maniac to you? Does that sound, sound like um, does it sound like somebody who's trying to achieve some sort of balance or somebody who's willy nilly about people's health? I mean, come on. Uh, something else, too. And I mentioned this piece yesterday on the show. and We didn't get to it. And I promised I would get to it today. And so let's get to it today. Mark Andreessen, who is the great, uh, well, now tech investor. He was the founder of Netscape, you know, he's a billionaire, thoughtful guy, very interesting. His op-ed, consistent with sort of the reopening of some of these state economies in some fashion, it's time to build. The harsh reality is that it all failed. Not just one political party, not just one government. The harsh reality is it all failed, writes Andreessen. No Western country or state or city was prepared. And despite the hard work and often extraordinary sacrifice by many people within these institutions, that occurred. So the problem runs deeper than your favorite political opponent or your home nation. That's a great foundation which to start. I talk about it all the time. System problems, systems that are fundamentally incapable of producing what they promise to produce, what you hope they produce. And so we see that in play here. Part of the problem is clearly foresight. But the other part of the problem is what we didn't do in advance, writes Andreessen, and what we're failing to do now. And that is a failure of action and specifically our widespread inability to build. It's a time to build. This is the motif throughout Andreessen's piece, a government that collects money from all citizens and businesses each year, but never built a system to distribute money to us when it's needed most, or certainly an imperfect system with respect to the distribution of the disaster relief checks. He uh, writes, at least therapies and vaccines are hard. Making masks and transferring money are not hard. We didn't build the infrastructure to make masks at volume. The reference, of course, we could have these things, but we chose not to specifically. We chose not to have the mechanisms, the factories, the systems, systems to make these things. We chose not to build. You don't just see the smug complacency, the satisfaction with the status quo and the unwillingness to build in the pandemic or in healthcare Generally, you see it throughout Western life and throughout American life. Housing, the footprint of our cities. We can't build nearly in, uh, enough housing in our cities with surging economic potential, which results in crazily, sky, uh, crazily stock, skyrocketing housing prices in places like San Francisco. So regular people can't move in and take the jobs of the future. He notes that when the producers of HBO's Westworld wanted to portray the American city of the future, they didn't film in Seattle or Los Angeles or Austin. They went to Singapore. Andreessen asks, why don't we have gleaming skyscrapers and spectacular living environments in our best cities at levels way beyond what we have now? Where are they? Sure. Look at the decay uh, outside of just certain and very few in most urban cities, neighborhoods, the, de- the urban decay. Uh, I certainly see that in Chicago where I live. He goes on. You see it in education. We have top end universities. Yes, but with the capacity to teach only a microscopic percentage of the four million new 18 year olds in the United States each year or the 120 million new 18 year olds in the world each year. Why not educate every 18 year old? Isn't that the most important thing we can possibly do? The last major innovation in K through 12 education was Montessori, which traces back to the 1960s. And I'll just build on what he's saying. We still run the school day like we did in America, just talking about as we did when Harry Truman was president, when mom was waiting at home at two thirty or three o'clock for 
Jr. to uh, come back and, uh, you know, then make sure he does his homework and or goes out and play and does, does his homework, whichever order. But the whole idea of the intact two parent family, we know what the incidence of illegitimacy is. We know what the incidence of single parent headed households is. And yet we're still modeling our day despite all we know about how children learn, even about the uh, how early in the day to begin an instruction and, and other matters. There's, you know, there's, there's decades and decades of research. I, I always make this uh, mention in Chicago. We've known for 30 years that the best way to teach science at the K through 12 level, uh, excuse, excuse me, at high school level to see, teach science, this order, physical science first, then uh, chemistry and then biology. And what's the first science course most high school freshmen take in Chicago? And I think most everywhere still biology. Why? Because that's the way we've always done it. We still have a lot of schools and school districts around the country that teach foreign languages, mainly at the high school level rather than at the grade school level, even though we know kids best learn great uh, best learn foreign languages at the grade school level. Inertia, smug complacency to borrow Andreessen's phrase. He uh, goes on, you see it in manufacturing. Contrary to conventional wisdom, American manufacturing output is higher than ever. But why has so much manufacturing been offshore to places with cheaper manual labor? We know how to build highly automated factories. We know the enormous number of high, higher paying jobs we would create to design and build and operate those factories. We're experiencing it right now as the, the sci-fi futurist uh, author William Gibson once said, uh, the future is here. It's just unevenly distributed. And that's what Andreessen's talking about. So why aren't we building those sorts of manufacturing facilities? You see it in transportation. Where are the supersonic aircraft? Where are the millions of delivery drones? Where are the high-speed trains, the soaring monorails, the hyperloops, and, yes, the flying cars? Not that I buy into all this stuff, but it's a matter of him, you know, dreaming the big dreams and seeing innovators uh, operating in that direction. The problem is desire. We, want to, we need to want these things. The problem is inertia, as I mentioned. We need to want these things more than we want to prevent these things. The problem is regulatory capture. We need to want new companies to build these things, even if incumbents don't like it, even if only to force the incumbents to build these things. And the problem is will, as in willpower, as in motivation. We need to build these, build these things. He says the right uh, starts out in a more natural, albeit compromised place. The right has to guard, fight hard to guard against crony capitalism. It's time for full-throated, unapologetic, uncompromised political support from the right for aggressive investment in new products and new industries and new factories and new science in big leaps forward, in a new thinking. As he notes, there are always outstanding people, even in the most broken systems. We need to identify talent, redirect it to our biggest problems, and work on the answers to those problems. It's a time to build. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show the other week we talked to uh, our friend uh, david hockberg about uh, fanny and freddie and hud and uh, what's being done to protect american homeowners from foreclosure what's being done to protect uh, american landlords from foreclosure frankly 
uh, foreclosure eviction, but uh, foreclosure for the landlord in multifamily units where you have renters, for example. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Ben Carson. He, of course, is the United States Secretary of the Housing and Urban Development Department Agency. Dr. Carson, thanks for joining us. Um, talk uh, about uh, what HUD is doing uh, with respect to you know, eight and a half million single family homeowners with uh, with mortgages or reverse mortgages insured by the FHA. Yeah, well, of course, the last thing somebody should be worried about is losing their home. In most cases, their most valuable investment. So that's why we moved so quickly early on to bring forbearance into play and uh, moratoriums on foreclosures that were in process or that would occur over the next 60-day period. And that can be reinitiated if necessary after that 60-day period. In addition to that, a lot of people were concerned that, okay, maybe three months of mortgages I don't have to pay, but then on the fourth month I gotta pay all that back. I won't have that money. Well, what we've done is uh, create a program, partial claim program, whereby we can amalgamate all of those payments into a sub-mortgage, which is tacked onto the end of the primary forward mortgage, interest-free, by the way, and does not have to be paid until after the primary mortgage is paid. And uh, when it comes to uh, families assisted by uh, public housing authorities, um, how is that dynamic working between the federal and the, uh, the local? Well, well, there, um, there's the moratorium on evictions, and uh, you know we work, we've worked with uh, all the public housing authorities, all 3,300 of them, uh, to make sure that they know what their various options are, including using some of their reserve funding. And uh, you know we are very cognizant of the fact that you know this is sort of a domino effect. It's it's not just the renter uh, who's in danger, uh, but Obviously, the the landlords have mortgages that they have to pay. Right. Also, the servicers have fees that they have to pass through to the investors. So, uh, you know, that's why we've created the uh, the pass through assistance program, so that you know Jenny May, who is involved with the mortgage mortgage backed securities, you know, can advance money that can then be used for the investors, so that. We really kind of try to take care of everybody along the whole spectrum. And I know that uh, FHFA and the uh, GSEs are, are considing such a thing. And, and, and Ginny May has the capacity to be stood up to provide that kind of backstop? Uh, as long as we don't go for, you know, an extended period of time, we we can do that, yes. We certainly would not want to be, you know, going on for six months or a year doing that. We, and that's why we're reintroducing people into the workplace again, which is a very smart thing to do. Uh, as I've said before, if we wait till every vestige of the virus is gone, our economy will be gone also. The infrastructure of our economy will be gone. So, you know, we have to be smart about this and we have to balance off, you know, the risk and benefits of, you know, having a society that is completely sheltered versus one in which we safely and logically reintroduce people back into the workplace, understanding, you know, how the virus is transmitted, understanding personal hygiene, social distancing, 
And if we do it that way, I think we'll be fine. Also recognize we have 50 different laboratories with 50 states, and people are opening up at different times and in different ways. And by observing what's going on, I think if, if we see something that isn't working, we can make sure that we, we very quickly utilize that information in subsequent places. As a, a medical doctor yourself, how would you rate the uh, advice and counsel that the president has gotten from doctors Burks and Fauci? Uh, I would say it's, it's been outstanding been very good. And, and of course, uh, any advice that they give in the current environment is going to be criticized. We understand that. But what we have to do is, is use facts and use science. And we learn things. You know, in the beginning, no one had any idea that 25 to 50 percent of people who carried the virus would be completely asymptomatic. And hence, the recommendations came that, you know, the average person didn't need to wear a mask. Well, of course, we've learned. And now we want to protect the people around us. So if you're asymptomatic and you're out in public, you need to have a mask because you could be spreading the virus. You know, we learn these things. And, and obviously, we add those to the armamentarian, and that's going to help us. When, uh, just again, putting your hat on as a medical professional, not your HUD hat, um, when you... Um hear of hospitals, uh, Wall Street Journal reporting the other day, hospitals that are on the verge of bankruptcy, uh, furloughs, pay cuts, and firings of medical professionals who are otherwise being lauded as heroes, rightly so, with the frontline defense against uh, infection and and treatment and forced treatment. Does it concern you that the, the government doesn't quite have this right in terms of uh, scrambling at every level in terms of scrambling all resources for COVID-19 at the expense, not just of other patients and their needs, but also of the business model for hospitals. Well, I think it probably was necessary uh, to stop a lot of the elective procedures that were going on at hospitals so that we could have, you know, the, the personal protective equipment that was necessary in order to deal with the crisis. But as the crisis is starting to fade, uh, you know, bringing back elective surgery and bringing back all kinds of elective procedures and filling those beds again will be absolutely critical. And that is part of phase one, and that is starting to happen already. So I, I think we will be in time to save those places. And also, uh, as you know, as part of the, uh, the CARES Act, a significant amount of money has been provided in order to sustain the hospital. So, you know, we recognize that we have a terrific medical system here and there's no way we're going to let it uh, die. Uh, one, medical facility. one other agency issue going back to HUD now, um, because this is important in terms of uh, state management, local implementation when it comes to things like testing, uh, what HUD is doing with respect to uh, CDBG grantees, Community Development Block Grant Program, uh, explain that. Well, uh, in the first tranche uh, of over uh, $3 billion, uh, $2 billion of that is dedicated to uh, CDBG-type programs. And there's a, a lot more flexibility in terms of how that funding can be used. But primarily, it's supposed to be directed toward those things that help us to combat, you know, the COVID-19 crisis. So, uh, you know, people will be using it in different ways. Some of it will be done for construction of uh, of treatment and testing facilities. 
some of it will be used to support industries that produce uh, medical equipment, some of it for convalescence. You know, there's a whole variety of different ways that it can be used. He is Dr. Ben Carson, United States Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. Dr. Ben Carson, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. With the oil market crashing, President Trump, of course, asked about uh, the prospects for revitalizing that market and had this to say. Well, the biggest thing in the toolbox is to get our country open. That's by far the biggest thing there is. If we can open pretty well, and I think we're going to over a period of time, piece by piece, puzzle, remember? If we can open well, I think that's your biggest part by far. That's where the engine is, more important than any other thing that we can work on. Uh, As yesterday, for the first time ever, traders were paid to get rid of their oil. Uh, Just a remarkable turn of events. The question is, is that a canary in the coal mine in terms of what's going to happen to uh, other sectors of our economy if the Great American Shutdown persists in its current form? For more on that topic, we're pleased to be joined by Jim Urio, CNBC contributor. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I uh, saw you on CNBC yesterday trying to make heads or tails of uh, this in real time. Um, I, with the uh, benefit of 24 hours, have you been able to make heads or tails of it at this point? Well, you just asked, is it the canary in a coal mine? And I think the answer to that is probably yes. Here's the way I think of it. The oil market it was kind of a reflection of what other risk assets would be like if they were divorced of government intervention, meaning the stock market, the bond market, you know, we know for certain that the, that the, uh, you know, the federal reserve is supporting assets are not directly supporting the stock market supposedly. And I'm fine with that. But the fact they're buying a bunch of other things supports the stock market. Now the government wasn't really involved in, in, uh, in propping up the oil market. As a matter of fact, up until a point two months ago, you know, Donald Trump had been pressuring Saudi Arabia to, uh, to you know to lower oil prices and then all of a sudden it happened and it happened you know a little too aggressively and now it has everyone shocked so is it a canary in a coal mine about the economic condition i think absolutely that is the case i think the may contract trading negative was filled with weird anomalies as to why that happened but if you look at the june and july contract contracts looking at this summer and they're rallying today, but the fact that they were just getting pummeled over the last few days is an indication that we are getting to a very critical part of this shutdown. And what it's saying is if, if things start to continue that way, that you know, the, the muscles that are the economy are going to begin to atrophy and not going to be as, diff- as easy to get things just kick-started again. Well, just in this space, uh, since we're making up so many rules as we go along here, are we doing so in the market as well? I mean, I, my, my understanding was that there was no... Uh, ability for oil contracts to go less than zero, but it happened at, at CME, but it happened anyway. 
Well, it did. I mean, any commodity, I guess. It's funny because this is, you know, if you talk to me last week, you'd be like, well, no, of course it's not going to go negative. But then, you know, if you have to pay somebody to take your oil because there's, there's no storage. And remember, too, that the storage story that has two different levels to it. The storage can be full, but what it was, it was fully leased. You know, all the storage space had been leased out already. The Cushing... You, there still had some capacity for storage, just it was impossible to get anyone to, to do it at the time. And, uh, you know, I don't know how deep in the woods I want to get about. Some mistakes were made. About, I, there, not a lot of contracts traded below um, zero. And what it was is, think about it this way. If you and I are oil traders, and we've been oil traders for years, we buy and sell oil futures contracts, but we never have any intention at all of delivering or taking delivery on oil. We don't even have the capacity for it. So if you were long oil coming in, your clearinghouse calls you and says, dude, you, you, don't know, you, can't, take, uh, you can't take delivery. You're not even set up for it. You've got to get out of these contracts. And that's kind of what happened. And then it puts a run on it. But now, now I heard from a trader friend of mine, so, but, I want, but I want to confirm this to you with, with you um, that uh, the, the, the a negative option market was created. So you could have government funded market makers giving away uh, giving away the people's money so their friends can take future long positions at less than zero. Well, Is there that right? was the, the, a negative interest rate market. I mean, a negative options market was created and the CME let it be known weeks in advance that yes, things can trade negatively. As to the other parts of it, um, you know, I, I don't know, but I do know that it was interesting. And if people were paying attention, they should have been like, huh, all of a sudden negative price contracts have just been added in the oil market. You know, somebody thinks something really weird could happen, and then it did. Yeah. Uh, when we come back with Jim Uria, I want to pick up our discussion by asking Jim if the watchword should be forbearance, not stimulus at this juncture. More with Jim Urio, CNBC contributor, right after this. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Jim Urio, CNBC contributor. Jim, and I wanted to run a policy proposal by you as we have the payroll protection program. Uh, soon to be refilled with another $300 billion of forgivable loans for small businesses. This is from Peter Wallison over at the American Enterprise Institute. He suggests that rather than another round of checks, individual checks to Americans, American families, which is still under discussion of phase five, phase six, phase seven, who knows how many phases, that instead of trying to stimulate consumption, that is impossible when there's nothing to consume effectively other than your three meals a day or two meals a day, 
we need a short-term forbearance system requiring landlords not to foreclose because of unpaid rent. And there's some of that happening, obviously, with FHA, Fannie and Freddie, too. But nor banks for defaulting on non-government mortgages. Due dates would also be deferred for car payments, electricity, other utility bills, school tuition. Credit card companies could temporarily increase their borrowing limits. All these deferred obligations would be treated as temporary private sector loans and bear a special interest rate higher than that of a deferred obligation so that you could uh, get interest in voluntarily participating because this would be a voluntary program, much like the payroll protection program or the Main Street lending program is a voluntary program. And he says, you know, maybe you spend a special rate about about six uh, percent in order to attract people to buy uh, deferred obligations from creditors. Gambling, the special rate would provide for a profit after covering any losses. What, what, what do you think about that construct of uh, we should talk if this is going to be extended in most of the. 50 states for another month, let's say, we should be talking about forbearance, not another round of checks to Americans. No, and I like it. The thing I was, it was depressing me as you asked the question, because wrapped up in that question is obviously the notion that we're not getting started in the next couple of weeks. We're yeah. probably not getting started in the next couple of months. So I hate even hearing the question too. I like where you're going with it. There's something that always bothers me when we talk about renters and landlords there's everybody kind of assumes this relationship is the landlord has deep pockets and the renters do not. And that's clearly not always the situation. But if we're talking about the government standing in and uh, lending money or assuring that those transactions, you know, it's very easy to have this populist wave where like, well, people shouldn't have to pay their rent. Well, that landlord's got to pay a lot of bills too. Yeah. And if we're just you know borrowing from one to pay the other, it's ridiculous making the assumption that someone has the deep pockets. I like I like everything he said that as far as the PPP is going right now and the really dramatic and aggressive moves the government is making as a conservative, I feel like I should generally be against those things, but I've kind of tried to put a fine point on why I'm not against it. And my, my thinking is this, is that this is the time and really the only time the government should step in this aggressively. What frustrates me is this you know, hopefully be gone in a month. Let's say it's gone in a month. And let's say six months ago before it was even on our radar, the government is still um, stepping in, you know, which creates malinvestment by keeping interest rates too low, by keeping you know, things over-regulated and those, don't, not allowing people to make the uh, same amount of money they could with small businesses. So I wish they would step out of the way in two months, but I wish they, I'm glad they're getting involved in the equation right now. Well, yeah, I agree with that. And, and with respect to, for example, the payroll protection program, my position has been, hey, look, um, you shut me down. That's a, that's a Fifth Amendment taking and so this is not a handout program, the PPP specifically. This is disaster relief. This is just compensation for what you did to my business. Now, I understand you thought this was in the, the, you know, the best interest of the, and for the greater good, but it doesn't make it any less of a taking than eminent domaining my property to build a highway, and you have to compensate me. That's exactly it. That's, uh, what we, that's the way we should look at it. Good. I, I like a happy-go-lucky Jim Urio. It doesn't happen very often in these days. It usually is happy-go-lucky all the time, but I'm getting really tired of this. Well, now, here, here's something, too, and, and you're an entrepreneur yourself, a restaurateur, and an uh, interesting piece by um, a restaurateur in Portland, Oregon, in the uh, Wall Street Journal. Our restaurants can't reopen until August is the headline of the piece, and it has nothing to do with the government at the state and local level in terms of uh, local decisions about shutdown. It has everything to do with the extension of unemployment benefits and the enhancement of them such that his employees are not going to come back to work to take a 60 percent pay cut uh, in terms of their normal compensation versus what they're getting un under unemployment insurance through at least July. Yes, there should never be 
motivation like that baked into the system. That, that's it's completely preposterous. We've kept most of our employees working. You know, we're doing a, a big carryout business, and the um, the community is supporting us. Like it's it's unbelievable how how much and how great the support has been. So we have two thirds of our staff that's been working the whole time. So I don't think we'll run into that same problem. But to underscore his point, absolutely. When the government starts paying people more to not work than to work, that's where we have to throw the challenge flag every time. That's ridiculous. And it amazes me to hear it said out loud. And I do believe it's true. Yeah. And I mean, he, he said we've had to lay off 700 employees doing our best to stay alive. What they do is uh, work with local chefs to open and operate their restaurants. And he's got uh, he's a partner in more than 20 of them in the Portland area. And he just says, look, uh, you know, starting wage for a line cook in one of our restaurants is 15 bucks an hour. So that's well above minimum wage. Get an hour, a dollar an hour in tips. Uh, and so, you know, he, he goes through the math and basically, look, they're making 400 bucks a week more to stay home. And so now you're retarding the opening of reopening of the economy, bringing everybody back online, even if the state and locality would be working through the phases to do so. You're putting uh, like this gentleman, for example, and all his employees on an August timeline rather than on potentially a June or even July timeline, which anything earlier is better. Does it make you happy to put me back into the bad mood? Like, Yeah, well, I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. It's yeah, okay. uh, These are schizophrenic so, times. Right. But something dawned on me as you said it, too. I think that big chain type restaurants, whether they be you know, local or regional, are going to have a much more difficult time with that. Because I think as you as the, the small family owned places I think and hope, and this might be naivete, but uh, that they've uh, developed relationships with their employees and have kept close to them in the yeah. off time. Yeah. And I find it difficult to believe that they all revolt on them right at the key time. So I don't think that's going to happen in small places, but I could see if you have 700 employees or you have five different restaurants and even more than that, I could see because of the anonymity with each employee to management, I think that that could happen easily. Yeah. And you also maybe come back instead of having 20 restaurants, you have 10 and now there's that many fewer jobs in the restaurant sector, the service sector in a particular locality, and that's not a happy event either. There's no doubt. And there's another element of it, too. We were driving yesterday, and there was a restaurant, and, and my daughter looked at it and said, because it hadn't opened yet. The three months prior to this happening, they'd been doing renovations and getting ready for a, a reopen. And they're like, what happens to a place like that? And my only answer is, that place can never open. They don't even qualify for PPP because they never had a staff. Right. You know, so all of a sudden, they're left holding the bag. So the restaurant industry, not just at the level of owning of, of restaurants that were fully operational, but ones that were trying to get into the business, too. It's just got to be devastating. He is Jim Urio, CNBC contributor and restaurateur. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and um, I'll uh, defer to the Adley Show. Uh, Dan Prof Show, deferring to the Adley Show. The Adley Show, uh, this, you know, woman, one of these uh, Instagram slash YouTube uh, presenters. Uh, but this is good. This is good. This is great writing, well-delivered commentary on the clear instructions that we're getting from our public policymakers uh, and other media influencers 
at every level. Clear guidelines in terms of how we're to conduct ourselves during the COVID-19 outbreak. Yeah, I really don't understand why everybody isn't following the same rules right now. They're very clear. So let's take a minute and let's go over them again. First, you must not leave the house for any reason, unless of course you have a reason and then you may leave the house. All stores are closed except those that are open and all stores must close unless of course they need to stay open. This virus is deadly, but don't be afraid of it. It can only kill people who are vulnerable and also those who are not vulnerable. We should stay locked down until the virus stops infecting people. And it will only stop infecting people if enough of us get infected that we build immunity. So it is very important that we get infected and also do not get infected. You should not go to the doctor's office or the hospital unless you have to go there. Unless, of course, you are too sick to go there. This virus has no effect on children except for those children in which it affects. The virus remains active on different surfaces surfaces for two hours or four hours or six hours, but in most cases it's days and not hours and it needs a damp environment or a cold environment that is warm and dry in the air, unless the air is plastic. Schools are closed, so you need to homeschool your children unless you can send them to school because you are not home. If you are at home, you can school your children using various portals and online classrooms unless you have poor internet, more than one child only one computer or you were working from home. Baking cakes can be considered math, science, or art. If you are home educating, you can include household chores within their education curriculum. And if you are home educating, you may start drinking at approximately 10 a.m. every day. If you- I'll uh, tweet it out at Dan Prof Show if, if you want to watch the rest of it or get on uh, Instagram. You can follow The Edley Show. And while you're there, follow Prof, follow me at Prof Dan. Um, but, uh, you know, that's the sort of clarity that normally you only get from MSNBC. Uh, just good stuff. Uh, and something else that you should watch online. No safe spaces. The Dennis Prager, Adam Carolla, number one political documentary of 2019. No safe spaces. You can watch it now at no safe dot com. And when you do for Dan Prof show listeners for a limited time, use the discount code save 25, which gets you 25 percent off. No safe spaces in terms of live streaming it, the price with the discount also allows you to watch as many times as you want until May 31st. So save 25, 25% off live streaming No Safe Spaces at nosafespaces.com, and you can watch it unlimited times between now and May 31. Take this time to check out No Safe Spaces with your family at nosafespaces.com. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. The other week when uh, Attorney General Barr sat down with Laura Ingram, he was asked, who poses a greater threat, which country poses a greater threat to our election security, China or Russia? And Attorney General Barr said, China. Well, he added, and I'm not just talking about elections. I'm talking about every aspect of our society. And that is a recognition that has been late in coming. 
And uh, H.R. McMaster, in a piece at The Atlantic that has uh, been circulated this week, wrote this. The assumptions from the late 1970s till very recently, the assumptions that America had with respect to its relationship with China were these. This is H.R. McMaster, former National Security Advisor, writing. After being welcomed into the international political economic order, China would play the rule, play by the rules, open its markets, privatize the economy. As the country became more prosperous, the Chinese government would respect the rights of its people and liberalize politically. And all of those assumptions were about 180 degrees off as we see China becoming an increasingly closed society, an increasingly repressive society, not dissuaded, as far as anyone can tell, from intellectual piracy and, of course, the cover-up of the outbreak of COVID-19. Somebody who had uh, an inkling into what uh, China had in store in a specific way through telecom as part of their uh, global strategy to be the world's superpower displacing America was uh, Robert Spaulding, Brigadier General, uh, United States Air Force uh, Brigadier General, retired, former Senior Director for Strategy at the National Security Council, he was the United States Air Force B-2 stealth pilot, and he's the author of Stealth War, How China Took Over While America's Elite Slept. Brigadier General Spaulding, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Great to be here. So um, tell us about um, 5G, the development of the 5G network, and how that implicates our national security, specifically with China, because this was your focus during your most recent uh, stint on the National Security Council. Yeah, well, so, I mean, it's been, of course, the government has focused on Huawei uh, as the real threat. And um, and Huawei definitely is a threat because it acts as an arm of the Chinese Communist Party and the People's Liberation Army. But, you know, that really doesn't describe uh, the true nature of the threat uh, overall. And it really is about data security and data sovereignty. And so today, you may be aware that Google and Apple have designed applications for contact tracing. Those applications are for use uh, with the current coronavirus to keep track of the spread of the disease. But those apps also give you an indication of how far uh, Silicon Valley has reached into the lives of Americans. Now, this technology and these, uh, this technology and these business practices that Silicon Valley has developed have been adopted by China. And one of the things that they have um, kind of been stifled, uh, one of the issues that stifled their, the spread of their, uh, of this domain is really the dominance of Apple and Google in the marketplace. And so they saw 5G as an opportunity to displace Apple and Google because in 5G, the platform for delivering apps and services and business models is the network itself. And so uh, rather than opening an app on your phone to have an Uber come and pick you up, you would just walk out the door, say Uber, a camera picks up your face, does facial recognition, and then uh, the network sends you a car. That's the idea behind 5G. And they've already begun implementing it in China. Uh, They went live in 50 cities last November. And so back in 2017, when I was a defense attache in Beijing, you could order food on your phone, put it away, and then walk, walk in the restaurant, and, the, and a camera in the restaurant would pick up your face, do facial recognition, the server would greet you by name and hand you your food. This is a world that they started building way earlier than, than this country has really understood what 5G is for, and they want to deploy that everywhere. And this is where you ran into problems at NSC. You ran into problems because you uh, you express. Here's my understanding from reading uh, some of what you've written. 
you uh, expressed the security concern and that sort of the government needed to be in bil- uh, involved in the build out of security around our 5G network. And you compared it to, you know, Ike and the National Highway System. That's just a digital version of it. And telecom companies don't want any uh, government that they haven't asked for for protective purposes. And so you got a foul of telecom companies who didn't want you or the government meddling in the the quality of the security of the network. And this is the this is ultimately what led to your ouster. That's basically it. You know, that's what I was told. Of course, I was never given a a reason, uh, you know, to my face. But I was told behind the scenes afterwards that that was the reason. Give us an example. Make it concrete. And, and, uh, you know, I don't want to to prompt a Ridley Scott screenplay here. But but uh, (laughs) uh, but in terms of what the potential exposure is, if we are willy nilly about the security at a, even if even if the private sector is not uh, uh, is concerned about security and takes steps to have a secure system as they can provide, what the enhancement is of government involvement and what the potential exposure is without it, and were a system to be compromised, what could Chinese communists potentially do uh, to attack our country? Well, so, I mean, it's really about having the power to influence at the individual level. And so you can create uh, protests through social media. You can you can uh, reduce a person's image in via social media. You can enhance an image via social media. And these these tools actually can be used by a foreign government to essentially influence, um, you know, at the individual level. And so conceptually, what you would have is the ability to track somebody through everything they do and then use that information both to assist their rise or to, you know, assist their fall. And essentially what you have to do is, you, and this is why, by the way, the Europeans came up with global data protection regulation. It was meant to protect the privacy of the individual. Unfortunately, because of open data, the way our architecture was created in the beginning of the internet, they're not able to actually implement that. In other words, they can't prevent the companies from using your data in ways that you don't desire. And so you actually have to go back and say, fundamental and foundational to a digital democracy is encryption of your data where you have the key and nobody else does. And then that access to that data is controlled by you. That is a, that is a fundamental component of a digital future where by, you know, this 5G world doesn't become this, this giant kind of Orwellian 1984 uh, madness that we're running into. Yeah, let, let me take a step back. As you mentioned in uh, one piece uh, from you that I read that you have libertarian tendencies, let me take a step, ask, a step back and ask you a philosophical question. My, my, one of the concerns I have is we're moving to a world of big tech oligarchs and big government, the elimination of the middle. Here we have the combination of the two, and I can't tell who is wearing a white hat and who's wearing a black hat, or if there are any white hats in this this conflict between telecom and, for example, what you wanted to do when you were uh, an advisor on the national security uh, in the National Security Agency. Give us give me your answer to that as somebody who's been on the inside. One of the things that I don't think is healthy for a democracy is for your government to have access to a, a DVR of your life. And that's essentially what we built with the Patriot Act. And so the idea of a secure encrypted internet for the American people is one where, you know, government doesn't have access to all of these cameras that are tracking you. You know, that's the idea is really so as this facial recognition, you know, technology is deployed, rather than that resolving to a name and phone number so that they can track you, 
it resolves maybe maybe to a random number that then you know is is not available to them you know so it's it's really about create preventing the surveillance of anybody uh, whether it be a large tech company as you mentioned whether it be your own government whether it be a foreign government it's really about restoring the idea of of privacy and data security you know for the individual citizen in a democracy you have to design that into the network and so what so what i'm what i'm feeling from reading uh, your work is that both government and telecom are competing for control for dominion they're not competing be over issues of who ensures privacy or who ensures safety physical or digital they're just competing for dominion Yes, and that's why totalitarians and authoritarians are actually dominating this space because they actually like what Silicon Valley has built. You know, we, of course, abhor it, and we can't, we can't understand how to um, deal with it. And that's why you kind of really need to take the power of that, you know, open data and understanding of everything you do in your life away from the tech companies and away from governments as well. And that's why you had to go. Now it makes a lot of sense. Robert Spaulding, he's retired United States Air Force Brigadier General, former Senior Director for Strategy at the National Security Council. He was an Air Force B-2 self-pilot. He's also the author of Stealth War, How China Took Over While America's Elite Slept. General Spaulding, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for the great question. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. The Trump campaign is uh, up with a new ad riffing off of uh, what is, I think, going to be an indelible moment in this campaign, this election season, and that's Nancy Pelosi on that late night talk show in front of her refrigerators, pro- uh, profiling her stock of Dove bars and other chocolate in advance of uh, Easter Sunday. We turn now to that $350 billion fund to help small businesses and its workers get through the shutdown. It will be up to Congress to restock it. But Democrats blocking that move this morning. They asked for a quarter of a trillion dollars in 48 hours. I said, well, I don't, I don't think so. They objected, and I congratulate the Senate Democrats. Speaker Pelosi, what are you going to share with us from your home? Chocolate candy. Thousands have been forced to wait for hours at food banks all across the country. This is oh my chocolate, and then we have some other chocolate here. We just got to restock the ice cream. You don't want to eat up everything all at one time. I can't do it much longer. I'm trying so hard. We were, can we say, enjoying. Having to admit that, yeah, we're... We're starving, and I like it better than anything else. Taping this segment, there are 22 million people out. This specific program is about stopping job losses today. This is hurting people bad. Other people in our family go for some other flavors, but... Right now, it's survival move. You don't know where that next something else is going to come from. I don't know what I would have done if ice cream were not invented. I just wonder. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, yeah. Delightful. You know, the juxtaposition between people suffering and Nancy Pelosi profiling her uh, dual refrigerators and all the chocolate contained within them. Uh, I mean, uh, there is a level of tone deafness there that uh, is difficult to deny. And I think it's effectively juxtaposed with uh, people's comments, regular people's comments who are suffering 
but that doesn't necessarily mean that it redounds to the benefit of President Trump. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Mark Penn, who's the managing partner of the Stagwell Group. He's chairman of the Harris Poll and author of Microtrends Squared, the new small forces driving today's big disruptions. Mark, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. You had a, uh, a good piece in uh, at thehill.com uh, in which you write, even in Star Wars, the Galactic Senate figures uh, – figured the the galactic senate figured out how to meet across galaxies uh you are a proponent of reopening the house of representatives that is well i i think several things are going on which 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 i note in the piece number one how is uh, the country being governed now spending trillions of dollars you're not attending congressional hearings on television you're not seeing open floor debates what's happening is that there are secret caucus meetings uh, at which the business of the country uh, is being done. And if they could hold secret caucus meetings, well, they certainly could hold uh, open session of Congress. And I said, well, look, how how much more difficult would it be than whatever members are there are there, you know, properly distanced, but everyone else has a screen uh, stuck in their chair and they could appear virtually, hold a session, and they could be voice print authenticated so they could vote. And this would be, there's no new technology that would need to be invented. You could stick an iPhone or a, uh, in, in every seat and stand it up. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous after all these weeks that we don't have a functioning Congress. Supreme Court is functioning. They're doing uh, oral arguments by phone and the public can listen in. The president is out two hours a day giving a briefing, and Congress is meeting in secret. This is wrong. It's a great point, and I don't think it's a point that's been appreciated enough, including by myself until I read your piece. You're absolutely right. It's it's being done at the leadership level, meaning Pelosi and McCarthy, uh, McConnell and Schumer, and uh, then the other members of Congress, the House and the Senate, so are more so the House than the Senate, are sort of just um, bit players in all this when, uh, as you say, Six trillion, six and a half trillion dollars in, um, we should be having robust debates uh, about the, the spending that kind of money. That's right. I mean, I think that that means that Pelosi is making all decisions. Uh, the committees and committee chairs and regular members of minority rights don't don't really exist uh, at the moment. And then all the rest of the business. What should we be doing on immigration? How are these programs working? What about the you know what about the healthcare system? There should be congressional hearings on, on, on all of this, not partisan hearings, but real hearings, right? And, and the public is getting absolutely crickets from the most important, you know, and, and third branch of government, which has now been allowed to be run by effectively one person. And pointed out, and in, in, in my polls, Pelosi is seen as perhaps the most partisan person in this entire pandemic. Sixty percent of the voters say she's acting out of partisan political motives. Uh, right now, actually, a majority says the president is not by two by, by two or three points in 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 the latest poll. And this is underscored by the fact that we don't have a functioning Congress at the time. And technology could easily be applied to make this a fully functioning body. Do you so many? Companies are working at home. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it could it be though, and this is again perhaps counterintuitive the way people think. Oh, politicians are always preening before cameras. Well, I'll tell you what. There's a lot of politicians that don't want to be noticed 
because not being noticed is great incumbency protection, particularly in an environment like this where we're in sort of we're like all cryogenically frozen or at least a lot of our lives are cryogenically frozen. And this is complicated. And this is these are difficult trade-offs that have to be figured. And you know what? Keeping my head down, saying nothing, not being seen or heard from probably would benefit me the longer this goes into you know the core of the election season. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, I don't think that's what's what's motivating what, what we're seeing with Congress. I think what's motivating what we're seeing with Congress is why should I have 435 people making a decision when I could just make all the decisions? I, I sure. That, that's clearly the result, result of this. And I think actually a lot of moderate members whose voices get lost in this and are up for re-election are unhappy about this because they don't have their say, they don't have an independent uh, voice. Uh, and and so I don't think it's working for, for politics. I think that it is working, uh, it's more about power. And uh, I think it's a significant issue. I think it should be clear. There's no excuse given that the Supreme Court can figure out, you know, how to keep functioning uh, appropriately. Uh, there's no reason that Congress couldn't uh, fig- figure this out and, and do a mixed version of, of online, virtual, and you know, and, and present in order to keep the business of the country moving in a transparent and democratic way. He is Mark Penn, managing partner of the Stagwell Group, chairman of the Harris Poll, and author of Micro Trends Squared: The New Small Forces Driving Today's Big Disruptions. And also check out his piece uh, that we were just discussing at thehill.com as well, which I'll tweet out. Mark, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. You find yourself still confined to your home, spending time with your family in large measure. And one thing that uh, you might enjoy is uh, uplifting movies that affirm our faith. Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus. This is a documentary which presents convincing evidence that the biblical account of Exodus is true. Investigative filmmaker Tim Mahoney journeyed to Egypt, Israel, throughout the world to search for answers to one very important question. Did the stories like Exodus as written in the Bible really happen? The results of his investigation are monumental. The three different films in the patterns of evidence series, one on the Exodus, the Moses controversy and the Red Sea miracle. And right now you can watch patterns of evidence, the Exodus at home, along with other movies in the series at patterns of It also includes a panel discussion moderated by Greg. Gretchen Carlson, featuring Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, and Graham Lotz. Again, Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, and the other stories in the series. Go to PatternsofEvidence.com. That's PatternsofEvidence.com. This is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, President Trump at the uh, Coronavirus Task Force briefing on Tuesday evening was asked about uh, the protests going on around the country against the great American shutdown. And, uh, of course, all the questions from the press corps were about Georgia, even though you have a Democrat governor in Colorado that is moving to phase in the reopening of his state as well. But it was uh, and, and all the op eds that you see from the Beltway outlets are about Georgia, Georgia's dangerous coronavirus experiment, Georgia, Georgia, Georgia. Uh, no consideration of uh, or intellectual curiosity about Colorado, some of the other states. Also, uh, no curiosity about Sweden. New York Times reported on Singapore experiencing 
uh, an increase, a recent increase in the number of infections after seemingly having it under control. Uh, but there's no consideration of Sweden, no asking about what's happening in Sweden. Why do you think that's happening in Sweden, which is, of course, uh, one of the countries that never shut down completely? Uh, same thing with Japan. Same thing with Taiwan. No, no interest in that. It's odd. Here's what Trump had to say about uh, the protesters. People want to get back to work. And I've watched some of the protests, not in great detail, but I've seen that. And they're separated. There's a lot of space in between. I mean, they, they're watching, believe it or not, social. They're doing social distancing, if you can believe it. And they are. And they're protesting. But they're, they're, uh, the, the groups I've seen have been very much spread out. So I think that's good. Look, people... They want to get back to work. They got to make a living. They have to take care of their family. They don't want to do this. It's, uh, you know, unfortunate, maybe one way or the other. Both are unfortunate. Both are unfortunate. But you have a lot of people out there that are anxious to get back. Yeah, they want to get back to work. Also, they don't want to be arrested if they play t-ball in a park with their daughter. They don't want to be shooed out of a park if they're, you know, running around a track by themselves or shoot off a golf course. If they're playing golf uh, you know, on a 7,500 yard track with a friend of theirs where you can keep a fairway apart, much less six feet. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Laura Logan. She's the host of Laura Logan has no agenda airing on Fox Nation. Laura, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. So um, what, what's your reaction uh, to the coverage of the protests, which are happening, by the way, in big blue states, too, like California? Um, as well as uh, the lack of intellectual curiosity from the press corps about uh, a different, how different countries have approached this, most notably Sweden? Well, I look at it in the context of um, you know, the coverage of this administration and this president that has been consistently negative from the very beginning. And I say that because it would be one thing if you, uh, if you looked at a, a website or you looked at a newspaper or turned on a TV and and all the coverage was overwhelmingly negative, but you could look at a history of fairness and um, and balance, and people looking at both sides or different points of view, and um, and that's not the case. You don't find that. So, uh, what troubles me is is that journalists and news organizations still consistently um, act as if the millions of Americans who don't agree with him or who see it differently or who perhaps want these other questions asked as if they don't matter and they are of no consequence. And, uh, and that should be troubling for any journalist and um, for anyone who's, who's trying to find out what's really happening. As the science and as the facts change constantly, with the, I feel like we're on a constantly shifting ground with this virus. One minute the infection rate is this, then the, you know, the infection rate is that, then death uh, toll is counted this way, and then you learn that patients who are not tested are counted if they have signs you know, and symptoms. So you feel like you can't really rely on a whole lot. We don't even know really how this virus began. You know, we don't know how it started or anything else. Um, and so uh, I look at the coverage of the protests and um, the questions that are not being asked in that context. And, um, and unfortunately, you know, we fall, we fall short in the media on those grounds. Uh, when we come back with Laura Logan, pick it up there and, and just uh, talk about um, the stories that are being covered and the stories that are not being covered, because 
the um, the certainty with which the press comes to what they think they know, uh, the majority of the D.C. press corps, what they think they know and the stories that must be covered to the exclusion of other stories um, is an issue that deserves more commentary as well. And we'll get it from Laura Logan, host of Laura Logan Has No Agenda on Fox Nation right after this. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Laura Logan. She's the host of Laura Logan Has No Agenda, airing on Fox Nation, talking about um, media coverage of you know everything under the rubric COVID-19. And Lara, uh, the LA Times editorialized, in this pandemic, it's live free and die. In other words, you have to make a choice. You either uh, live uh, in a uh, shutdown environment or you uh, only live for a little while longer because you're going to die. Uh, it's uh, it's 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 one of the things that's been consistent through all the coverage that this is just about saving lives versus dollars and cents rather than lives versus other lives. And there was a good piece um, in realclearpolitics.com by Jackie Deason, who's uh, uh, with the Texas Public Public Policy Foundation that goes through how this is, you know, lives versus lives, as we've argued on this show. Uh, For example, uh, she she writes, we already had a suicide epidemic in this country before the virus with nearly 50,000 Americans taking their own lives and an additional estimated 1.4 million attempting to do so, and that was just in 2018. Then she goes through the incidence of heart attacks and heart disease and the studies that have looked at what economic hardship does to people's physical health. And, you know, look, it's fine to talk about vulnerable populations. It's fine to talk about what we need to do to protect uh, elderly people in nursing homes or people with underlying conditions. That's all fine. That should be part of the discussion. Why can't this be part of the discussion as well, the public health implications of economic devastation? Well, this is the way that I look at it, Dan, is that real life just doesn't happen that way, right? Things are not so clear-cut and uh, well-defined. The reality is that in real life, you can have both. You can have these conversations. So what's preventing us from doing so? That's a political choice, right? That's a political construct that's standing between us, because if it just happened naturally, that's what we'd be doing. So whenever there's something that's been engineered to be unnatural, in a sense, we're being channeled down these two paths, um, regardless of what the reality is, um, then I always have the question, well, why? Why is that happening? And who's doing that? And the the why is is very obvious. It's um, because there there are people who are pushing for one path, one certain set of outcomes, and um, and they want that. Uh, they appear to want that at any cost. 
And uh, the other part is being you're not allowed to talk about that, and if you do, you therefore fit into this category. And, and those are very familiar tactics. There are signs that you can see, and you can apply those you know, uh, throughout the media landscape when you look at different stories. If you question um, the science of some aspect of climate change or the legitimacy of uh, you know, the Paris Accord and what's being done there, how much it's costing versus the benefit, then you are automatically a denier, right? You go into a bad category of terrible people, um, and there's no in-between. Well, that's not true. There is an in-between. You can believe in uh, you know, being uh, responsible about the climate and preserving it and not polluting your rivers, et cetera, et cetera, without having to, to be 100% adherent to this extreme course of action, you know, such as the Green New Deal, right? You can question the science of the, and the, of the uh, money, the business of the Green New Deal without being a denier. It's the same thing as you can be critical, you know, of certain things that are happening without being racist. These are boxes and traps that are, are political traps that are created for us, and they don't just happen through the media. There are people who plant those ideas and, in the media, who exploit the existing bias in the media to achieve the outcomes that they want. And these people are, are you know, they're very smart. They're very good at this. They're well-funded. They have willing allies and, and partners um, across the media landscape. And then also when you extend that into Hollywood and late-night talk shows and to civil society organizations, to academic institutions and think tanks, you know, the universe for these people is vast. And that, sort of, to me, contributes to why people on the other side of that who maybe don't agree are so easily channeled into these boxes and spaces where we represent the worst of the worst. And it's a total distortion of reality because if you go to anyone um, in this country who, who maybe wants to go back to work and is pushing to reopen the economy, I, I, I'm sure, you know, in my experience, you won't find them saying, we don't care about anyone dying from this virus. Right. You know, we're, we're not uh, moved by this tragedy. You, you know, of course you are. People are taking this very, very seriously. But they know that when they can't pay their mortgage and they're losing their business and they're losing their house, there isn't going to be a body count, right? There's not going to be a whole world that comes to a standstill and, and, and helps you fix your problem. It's not going to be like that. You're going to be on your own again. This, um, this money that's being poured into small business and everything else right now, the first, uh, what, more than $300 billion only lasted – 14 days, the, the next $300 billion is going to last, you know, uh, not much longer than that, if, if any longer, and somebody has to pay for that. We all pay for that at some point. There is nothing is free. There's always a price. And there's already a price being paid all over the world. What about the price in social unrest? What about the price for people who have not been able to have elective surgery for cancer? I mean, of course, these are legitimate conversations that we should be allowed to have. And if we're not being allowed to have them, then people need to ask, why not? Who's preventing us from doing that? And we need to stand up against that. Uh, speaking of um, just sort of the distortion of reality, uh, this sort of thought exercise we went through on the show yesterday, if... If the uh, majority of the infections and the deaths had occurred in Nebraska and New Mexico instead of New York and New Jersey, the epicenter of uh, of Western finance and media, do you think the news coverage would be different? Well, it's hard to say because I do believe um, that when people die in large numbers, 
journalists respond. I mean, when, you know, you know, it's one of the criteria that really defines our coverage, right? When, when the consequences are so extreme and you're dealing with death, it always gets our attention. Well, I should say always. When it's Americans at home, you know, it would, it would certainly get attention. Would it get the same amount of attention? You know, that seems kind of obvious, right? Because you've got so many journalists and media organizations that are based there, it's right in their backyard. And just look at the history. They do, they do cover um, this country as if they are the center of the world. I mean, if you, if you grow up outside of the United States like I did, this country is defined by the media on the East Coast and the Hollywood on the West Coast. That's what the, the rest of the world thinks America is and is supposed to be. She is Lara Logan. She's the host of Lara Logan Has No Agenda, airing on Fox Nation. Lara, always a pleasure. Thanks for making the time. Thank you, Dan. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to The Dan Prof Show. President Trump at the task force briefing last night where a special appearance was made by a friend of the show, Brett Baer. That was fun to see, and it was great to have Brett there because he gets right to the point with substantive questions that demand substantive answers. So there's that actual value add for the listener. What a novel concept. One of the questions he asked, what about that Harvard money that I screeched about on this show? The idea that Harvard, with a $41 billion endowment, should be getting disaster relief funding under the CARES Act after the same Harvard laid off their dining hall workers because they didn't want to dip into the $41 billion. President Trump was asked about that, and here's what he had to say. So look, I don't like when Harvard that has, I think, a $40 billion endowment or some incredible amount of money that Harvard gets this money. Harvard should pay that money back. I want Harvard to pay the money back, okay? And if they won't do that, then we won't do something else. They have to pay it back. I don't like it. I don't like it. This is meant for workers. This isn't meant for one of the richest institutions, not only far beyond schools in the world. They got to pay it back. I want them to pay it back. Amen. You can't hide from Trump in your safe spaces in Cambridge, uh, Harvard faculty and administrators. Amen. And here's something else I would encourage the president to do. Take that step. Now keep going because Harvard wasn't the only one that received the disaster relief funding through Department of Education, the portion of the CARES Act disaster relief that was demarcated for the Department of Education to distribute all the Ivy League schools. And while you're at it, frankly, all the higher education, higher education is closed. You've got students uh, and you know, doing distance learning. You have students petitioning and most unsuccessfully for some kind of relief in reimbursement for the time they're not spending on campus and beyond just the meal plan and the lodging. And uh, we're going to provide funding for these same universities where the federal support for universities is one of the reasons that college and university tuition has so vastly outpaced inflation over the last 40 years. No, this is a time to force uh, some accountability at the higher education level, just as it's a time to force some accountability at the state and local level. No safe spaces for these elites. Speaking of no safe spaces, no safe spaces, the Dennis Prager, Adam Carolla variety, 
is available for you to watch at nosafespaces.com. This is the number one political documentary of 2019. Uh, This is the documentary that Prager and Carolla put together to explain the war on free speech that's occurring on college campuses, on social media platforms in Hollywood, and what you can do about it. And you can watch it now for a limited time. And uh, here's what you do. Also, use the discount code SAVE25 for Dan Prof listeners, Dan Prof Show listeners. SAVE25 gets you 25% off the streaming iteration of No Safe Spaces. Uh, and you can watch it as many times as you want from now until the end of May, from now until May 31st. So No Safe Spaces, available at nosafespaces.com, only at nosafespaces.com. For a limited time only, use SAVE25 to get 25% off. And watch it as many times as you want between now and May 31st. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers. And to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Prof Show. We're pleased to be joined by former Oklahoma Governor Frank Keating. Governor Keating, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, no, it's my pleasure, and I, I apologize when I heard about rain in Chicago, and my mother was a Northwestern product. Oh. I, uh, mm. I think we have a big uh, thunderstorm going through right now, and we got a, uh, a yellow lab, a rescue lab, two months ago, and she's terrified of rain. So if you hear whining in the background, that's not me complaining. <laughs> that is the dog. And, right. and please forgive me. Very good. Um, before we get to uh, Wargaming, the next pandemic, which is a really interesting piece you penned for the Wall Street Journal, uh, I just wanted to get uh, your reaction to the crash of the oil market because of how much that impacts the Oklahoma economy. Well, can you imagine if you were in the potato growing business and you uh, somebody came to you and said, yeah, I'd like to have 10 of those potatoes. And you said, great, they're a dollar a piece. And he said, no, 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 you pay me $2 a piece. Yeah. I mean, that's where it is. Um, There is a gentleman who is one of the very significant energy leaders in America, a guy named Harold Hamm, who raised the issue yesterday of really criminality involved in that whole thing. So now, is that true? Who knows? But it just seems impossible that you would have a product that is, you know, hugely valuable and now it not only has no value, it has no, no value. It just doesn't make sense. But again, this is a very doesn't make sense era we're in. And uh, I'm just hoping the sky's clear because Oklahoma's economy, it's not totally dependent on oil and gas, natural gas, but there are about 35 states in the United States that, uh, that drill for oil and gas or involved in the energy business in some way. And that's not good. Certainly for us, it's not good, particularly when the product you're selling has no value. Uh, does it speak to um, a sense of urgency, you know, from your perspective on beginning, you know, sort of a phased, thoughtful, measured reopening of the economy where uh, the outbreak seems to be at least flattened? 
Well, I think that you would agree with me. I don't know about the Chicago Metro, probably exactly alike, but the people most vulnerable are those who have very little savings, those that are the gig economy. Um, You know, a lot of people in my family, your family perhaps, and people we know well that are face down in the mud, we have to reopen the economy. And I think sometime in May, in various ways, they the economy will be reopened. We have a big furniture store company in Oklahoma, Mathis Brothers. It's all over the United States. And they've reopened because they were permitted to. And when you go in the store, they have an entrance. It says entrance. They have exit. It says exit. They take your temperature. Their employees have masks on. They have you wash your hands. They make sure that there's social distancing. And they're doing it very well. And even Chicago, or even uh, California, rather, <clears throat> has agreed that they can reopen. Uh, the issue, really, for me is how many of us desperate small business people would be willing to do that, which could obviously start uh, the pandemic all over again, even in areas that we thought it was gone, it had uh, leveled off. <clears throat> but there's no question. Uh, in Oklahoma, we need to reopen, <clears throat> and certainly the energy business here was a double whammy. So it's not a pretty morning, even though it's raining, and that's good news. Tell us about uh, your participation in a simulation when you were governor called Dark Winter. Well, Dark Winter was <clears throat> what they call a tabletop. It's not dissimilar <clears throat> to a lot of spontaneous exercises. And Dark Winter was held at Andrews Air Force Base. In Maryland, it was, pardon me, it was uh, participated in by a lot of very significant people at the time. The former CIA director played the CIA director. I was still the governor of Oklahoma. Um, And, you know, the former FBI director played the FBI director. Sam Nunn from Georgia, who was one of the stellar U.S. senators, I say that as a Republican, he was a Democrat, uh, played the president of the United States. And it just a, turned into a melee, really, between who has jurisdiction, who doesn't, who's in charge, who isn't. And these are the kind of things that have to be prepared for, because in a federal system like ours, states are sovereign. The states created the federal government. So what to do about that? Well, the dark winter exercise showed me and showed us that the federal government needs to anticipate the problems. In the case of Dark Winter, it was a smallpox attack on a shopping center in Oklahoma City. Well, it was the Oklahoma City people, the doctors and and others, who'd recognized it was smallpox. But, you know, the federal government had very little smallpox vaccinations, which is true to this day. And there was very little knowledge of what smallpox was because we licked it as a virus years and years and years ago. So everybody was floundering around trying to figure out, okay, well, for example, in my case, the military guys wanted all the smallpox vaccines, the federals that wanted to come in. And I said, wait a minute, I won't get one doctor and I won't get one nurse to work in a hospital to take care of smallpox patients. Or we took over schools and put patients in, in, uh, in classrooms. And I said, we won't get anybody in those places if they're not vaccinated. So the president overruled them all and said, that's right. And, um, I mean, those are the kind of tabletop yeah, exercises, the type of issues that have to be resolved in advance 
uh, either a radiological, biological, nuclear event in the United States. And I was on one of those tabletop exercises as well. And think about this. The Congress and the White House never once had a hearing or a roundtable discussion of dark winter, the smallpox pandemic, or the radiological, biological, nuclear event that the RAND Corporation exercised not too long after that. Well, that's what the federal government should do, and we can take care of it at the state level when they tell us in advance what the problem is. And in the case of this pandemic, they didn't. And in the case of dark winter and the smallpox, they didn't. And that says something that is a horror show about to occur, not only in this case, as it has, but also in others. It's really scary. In 1995, you were faced with the terrorist attack, the the destruction of the Edward Murrah Federal Building. Uh, so that's obviously different than what we're facing now, but it involves the same symmetry, the coordinated federal, state, local response to in the moment and then, you know, in the aftermath. And so lessons that you learned from, you know, managing that catastrophe, that uh, attack. Well, the, the principal lesson that I learned, and at the state and local level, frequently this lesson isn't learned, and that is, I don't care what your politics are, you have to have the most competent people working for you. For example, when I, as a, the first Republican governor since the 60s, came into office, I chose as my adjutant general in charge of the National Guard, a Democrat who was already a two-star general who happened to be an Air Force guy. Well, the Army guys weren't happy, Republicans weren't happy, but thank goodness General Courtright was there when the bombing occurred because he knew instantly what to do and how to organize the Guard, integrate with the police, help the uh, fire service do all the first responder things that the Guard can do. I would have been lost if without Steve Courtright. So the lesson there is, you know, it may be that you want to appoint one of your fraternity brothers or your sorority sisters to a top emergency management position because it looked good in the obit. Don't do it. Put people in that really know what they're doing. So if a bad thing happens and we murder board here in Oklahoma for tornadoes and we respond very well to them because we're prepared, but, you know, a bombing of a federal building, just thank goodness that the Oklahoma City leadership was excellent. Um, because of my background, supervising most of the federal law enforcement establishment, I had a lot of quality people. Bill Clinton was a friend of mine from college, even though I'm a little bit older than he. And we brought together what later became known as the Oklahoma Standard, you know, competency and success in a very bad situation and in the uh, in the area of pandemics and the area of nuclear, biological, radiological events that can happen and could happen and will happen, or a bombing, we need to be prepared for it in advance, and the federal government needs to tell us what to watch out for. Uh, and Alfred Murrah, federal building. I think I said Edward Murrah. I always do that. I think I hear Murrah, and I think Edward Murrow. But anyway, sorry about <laughs> oh, that. Oh, Edward R. Yeah, uh, Alfred Murrah, Federal Building. Uh, he is Frank Keating. He's the former governor of Oklahoma. Uh, check out his piece in the Wall Street Journal, which I'll tweet out, Wargaming the Next Pandemic. It's, it's good stuff. Governor Keating, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your insights. Well, thanks for letting me uh, drone on, and I will take care of my dog terrified of this thunderstorm. And you guys have a great day. Please do. You too. This is the 
Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And uh, our next guest, I, I love this from his bio. I think it speaks to a bit of personality here, which is perfect for our time. Dark sense of humor. Dave was born in Buffalo and grew up listening to shortwave radio and rooting for doomed sports teams. We know all about that in Chicago. Uh, Dave Seminara has written on topics as varied as a 643-shot tennis rally, a missing person case in Costa Rica, hippies in Chile, gastronomic societies in the Basque country, birding and the occupation of the Mahler National Wildlife Refuge, and traveling in the footsteps of Kurt Cobain. He's a former diplomat who uh, served in uh, Central America, among other places, and uh, the author of Breakfast with Polygamists, Dispatches from the Margins of the Americas, which uh, now I'm anxious to read. He also uh, penned a rather entertaining uh, retrospective on National Democrats from January 1st to present for the Wall Street Journal that we want to start, uh, that we want to discuss with him. And we'll start there with Dave Seminara. Dave, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on the show, guys. Yeah, you wrote this piece, uh, Democrats 2020 Coronavirus Hindsight, and you just go through a couple few examples of what uh, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders and the other Democrat presidential candidates were saying in January and February and, frankly, well into March uh, as the viral outbreak was extending itself. Your perspective on what they had to say. What they had to say and what they did not have to say is very interesting. I mean, as I heard the torrent of criticism uh, coming the president's way from many Democrats, not just Joe Biden and Pelosi, but really all of them, saying that Trump's response was too late, it was too slow, so on and so forth, I thought, huh, because I remember watching these debates and I think I was thinking in my mind, God, I wonder what they were saying back in the time, because they held five debates between mid-January and mid-March, and this is more than 11 hours of national TV time they had to spout off about whatever they wanted, really. So I went back and I looked at all five transcripts, and it was pretty amazing what I discovered. It really, there were no solutions there. There were no bright ideas. There was no prescience. They weren't calling for lockdowns earlier. They weren't calling for social distancing. Even at the March 15th debate, which by that point, it was just Bernie and Biden, and it was, I mean, that debate was just a mess. Neither of them could really even remember the name coronavirus, let alone have any solutions for it. It was not impressive, to say the least. Well, yeah, and by the way, your intellectual curiosity, gosh, I wonder what leading Democrats were saying or leading critics of the president were saying at the time really separates you from the D.C. press corps, as we've seen from these task force briefings. Just one point you make here is is Sanders misidentified COVID-19 as Ebola and Biden confused COVID-19 with the swine flu, which he also misnamed. And this is this is in mid-March. This is six weeks after President uh, Trump shut down our border to travel from China. So it's not like this was an unknown topic. Oh, no. I mean, by March 15th, the debate you're referring to when they could not remember the name of it, it was absolutely not an unknown topic. And in fact, about half of that debate, let's say almost half that debate was about the coronavirus and they still couldn't remember the name of the darn thing. I mean, only Joe Biden could make like three mistakes within one sentence. Right. I mean, he kept talking about <laughs> Ebola. I mean, he was waxing nostalgic <laughs> about his favorite disease, Ebola, throughout the debate. At a certain point, he just kept talking about the good old days of being in the situation room and listening to the experts and so on and so forth saying essentially nothing. And then he misidentified swine flu. 
And then in the same sudden, all of a sudden, he could not even remember the name of his favorite disease anymore. So rather than calling it Ebola, he said, what happened in Africa? Because he couldn't, then he forgot Ebola. It was like, dude, it's your favorite disease, Ebola. And now you've forgotten that one too. It was, uh... anybody look, I mean, I'm not saying that the Trump administration has done an A-plus job on this, but anybody who wants to tell me that Biden or other Democrats were more prescient or would have done better, I will direct you to the transcripts of these debates. And they're all out there with a very simple Google search. Or if you want to just get the highlights, read my article. But believe me, there was nothing smart being said at all. And in fact, in the February debates, when there were a few brief mentions of coronavirus, a number of different candidates were sort of insinuating or blatantly saying that climate change was the more immediate danger to us, including Tom Steyer, who explicitly said that. And now Tom Steyer is the point man for Gavin Newsom in California in terms of the, <laughs> ta- the coronavirus task force. Sure. I mean, I think Tom Steyer is going to be the guy who's going to be handing out those $500 checks to the illegal immigrants in, in California, <laughs> right, that they're giving stimulus checks to. But he should be paying it from his own fortune instead of from the taxpayers' money, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, I mean, it really does call for a dark sense of humor, this. Uh, Something else that you sort of uh, hint upon that is a particularly uh, idiosyncratic issue with me, which is these uh, T-shirt phrases that are used by politicians. Listen to the experts. First, we gain control of the virus. Then we reopen the economy. What does that mean exactly? Listen to the experts. Here's the problem. There are people that have the same credentials that are saying very different things. So the experts are not a monolith um, or get the virus under control. Then we reopen the economy. What does under control mean to you specifically? Platitudes. I mean, Joe Biden is a master of platitudes. I mean, look, I just keep waiting for someone to burn him with his own words. I mean, the guy is a lying dog-faced pony soldier. (laughs) To Um, borrow a phrase. The guy, (laughs) listen to the experts. I mean, it's nonsense. I mean, look, here's the bottom line as far as I'm concerned, is that everybody who has half a brain knows that China takes the overwhelming responsibility for this crisis that we're in right now. However, the Democrats don't want to admit that because they want voters to blame this squarely on Trump. And sharing blame, uh, they can't say, oh, well, China's to blame, but Trump is also to blame. No, no, no. They, they, that's too complicated. They want voters to be very clear on this. And so they don't voice a word of criticism towards China, even though China was reportedly, um, you know, they shut down the Wuhan airport for domestic flights, but they were allowing international flights to leave, right? I mean, look at the spread of the disease in China. It was only in Wuhan. It didn't really spread to the major cities of China. And why is that? Uh, you know, but again, the Democrats don't want to get into any of that. They want to give China a pass and they want to pin the thing on Trump. As you pointed out in the the March 15th debate, Sanders asked by Jay Tapper about uh, China's culpability. And he said, quote, it wasn't the time to be punishing people, as you write, yeah. then, then immediately pivoted to criticizing Trump. <laughs> right. Let's punish Trump. Let's punish Trump, but not China. Uh uh, it's it's remarkable. I I mean, just your perspective as somebody. So you I mean you were in our diplomatic course, so you're familiar with government and uh, the unintentional comedy of government, and and it's relatively harmless, except when we're facing the sort of harms that we're facing today, both public health and economic health. I mean, what what is your perspective on the the political elites? I mean, I don't even know why we use that term elites. That that connotes like expertise or separation from the the common. I think what we see is that we're in a cacistocracy, we're ruled by our, our inferiors. I agree with you. I mean, I, our, look, listen, our elites are a disgrace. And I think it, they're, they're one of the major reasons why we find themselves in this horrible position that we're in as a country. And we're so 
I mean, I have to tell you too that you know, in response to this article, I got a lot of good feedback. There's more than a thousand comments, and I think most of them are positive. Though I don't read them, I usually get my wife, who's sort of the screener, to tell me what people are saying. <laughs> but I also received two death wishes uh, by email after this came out too. One person said that he hoped that I died from coronavirus, huh. and another person said that he that I should jump off of a building and so on and so forth. So I had two people writing me to tell me that they thought that I should die. And I thought, and, and the funny thing, I should say funny, but people write you with their own name, these kind of things too, and from work email addresses. So you can see exactly who they are. And I thought, you know, and one of them too, uh, very ironically said later in his message that we need to unite as a country. And later <laughs> in the message, he said that I should die, that he hopes that I die from coronavirus. Remarkable. He is Dave Seminara, former diplomat, author of Breakfast with Polygamists, Dispatches from the Margins of the Americas. And uh, check out his piece, which I'll tweet out from the Wall Street Journal of the Democrats 2020 Coronavirus Hindsight. Dave, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Have a good day. You, you. too. Would you rescue me? Would you give my back? Would you take my car when I start to crack? Would you rescue me? Uh, would you rescue me? You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, there was a study out yesterday that appeared in the New New England Journal of Medicine, not yet peer-reviewed, but it was supported by the NIH and the University of Virginia. 368 patients who died or were discharged from VA hospitals uh, on or before April 11th. The researchers found 28% of patients given hydroxychloroquine died, while 11% died with normal care. They find HCQ did not have an effect on patients' need for breathing medicine. The antimalarial drug that has also been known to produce side effects and particularly uh, problems with heart rhythms. So uh, Dr. Uh, Stephen Hahn, FDA director, was asked about that study at yesterday's task force briefing, and he provided useful context. This is something that a doctor would need to consider as part of a decision in writing prescription for hydroxychloroquine. And as I've mentioned from this podium and in other venues before, what, what FDA is going to require is data from clinical trials, randomized clinical trials, uh, hydroxychloroquine placebo, to actually make a definitive decision around safety and efficacy. But the preliminary data are helpful to providers. And doctors, I want to ask them to incorporate the data as we have it come forward. Uh, and it's not definitive data. It doesn't help us make a decision from a regulatory point of view. But doctors should incorporate that in the decision-making they make on a one-on-one basis. It's just the timeline on the clinical trials and when we will be getting a readout of that data? So the good news is we have over 30 clinical trials. Now, the settings are very different. They're in the outpatient setting, they're in the inpatient setting, and also, I think, very importantly, in what we call the post-exposure prophylaxis, meaning if you're a healthcare worker or a frontline provider and you've been exposed to the virus, take the drug for a period of time to see if you can prevent the development of illness related to the virus. So all those trials are in progress, and will probably be early summer before we get a readout. Uh, finally, a good follow-up question from the press corps assembled for those task force briefings. What's the timeline? Yeah, early summer. I don't know exactly what that means. First day of summer is June 21st. Does that mean around uh, late June? Or Anyway, at least you're starting to hold people accountable to a timeline with clinical trials underway. They have to have some idea when they're going to get the results and the results analyzed that they can make a categorical statement. Uh, the the re- interesting thing is the response from some in the press is almost like spiking the football, like, yay, this study turned out to be 
to suggest that HCQ is not an effective antiviral. Why are you taking a position? Just go where the science leads. Be restrained when you hear studies out of France that suggest that HCQ could be an effective antiviral. Other anecdotes we've heard over the months. Don't get out over your skis and saying it is. Um, and don't get out over your skis and saying it isn't until the clinical trials are done and you can have professionals make categorical statements. What is so difficult about that? The good news is it uh, reasserted a discussion about antivirals, about therapeutics to deal with COVID-19, which is where Ryan Streeter thinks we need more emphasis. He is the director of domestic policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yes. Hey, it's good to be with you. Thanks for joining us. Um, so your reaction to the news about hydro, uh, hydroxychloroquine and, and uh, what uh, Dr. Hahn had to say about it? Yeah, well, there's been a lot of discussion about that. And um, I think we need to do what you suggested earlier, and that is uh, allow the science to lead us in the, in the right direction. There's just still um, too much about this that we don't know. There's been a lot of early speculation. Um, uh, received a disproportionate amount of attention in the White House briefings compared to other things that are going on. And uh, and I think what what's good about having um, the direct, the commissioner Han there and at these briefings is to is to create kind of more space in the White House briefings for discussion about where uh, the clinical trials of other types of treatments are and where they stand, what what we're learning, what we're what we're finding out, so that so that the American public can actually have a better grasp of this. We've been you know, preoccupied until now with um, understanding the hospitalizations and understanding how equipped our hospitals are or are not. And there hasn't been as much focus on these sorts of things. So I think I'm, I'm glad to see that, that they had the discussion yesterday. And my hope is that they'll continue to talk not just about this particular drug, but about the others that are showing some promise as well. And also the, the role of the NIH in this, which has now stepped up as a coordinator of scientists across the country and even uh, across the world to, to help coordinate better so that we can move more quickly on the development of these treatments. Yeah, that's where I want to pick it up, too, uh, after uh, the break is uh, moving on uh, on drug approvals and sort of a, a structural approach to doing that that you outline in a piece at RealClearPolitics.com that I want, to, uh, I want you to address. Ryan Streeter, Director of Domestic Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. We'll be right back with more. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're joined by Ryan Streeter. He's the director of domestic policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute. That is. Uh, also where you find uh, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who we've talked about a lot on this show, former FDA commissioner and uh, one of the uh, uh, higher profile voices when it comes to all things related to dealing with this pandemic on the Sunday talk shows and uh, op-ed pages and as well. Uh, Ryan, uh, you sort of fly in formation with Scott, in, at least in part in this op-ed that I referred to before the break. Uh, you uh, talk about sort of 
three reasons why it's important that we start to create a little bit more of a sense of urgency about uh, antiviral treatments. Yeah, that's right. And Scott is the real professional here. I'm not a biomedical policy expert, but I wrote this as someone who oversees our domestic policy work and also someone who's worked in the White House before and had an experience kind of on the inside of of managing policy, never with anything as huge as this pandemic, but in in crisis situations. The the point I was trying to make in this piece was to say that uh, when the White House, particularly through the briefing structure, puts emphasis on certain topics, the people whose responsibility it is to work in the areas covered by those topics feel an additional amount of accountability and transparency and pressure, good, good kinds of pressure. I wrote this piece because uh, in observing the daily briefings, I was kind of struck by how absent this topic was from the discussion. That is a, a better sense of where we stand in terms of treatments. And, and just to, to, to clarify, but treatments are basically fall into two big buckets. One would be antiviral medications that, you know, these are not vaccines, but these are like other types of, of medications you might take to combat the effects of a virus and to, to minimize the symptoms and possibly even prevent you from getting sick in the first place. And then the second are the antibody therapeutics, which are essentially create the antibodies that your, your body would produce if you had had the disease already, and it helps you build up immunity to it without ever having to have had the disease. And there are some promising therapies in development right now. We still don't know enough about them, but the, re- the reason it's good to focus on these things is so that um, the media's attention um, business leaders' attention and others gets focused on this because this is going to be a critical part of the solution. And we're all talking about how to reopen the economy and when and, and what the role of social distancing is and, and proper hygiene and all of that. But when we have therapeutics out there, that's going to give a lot of people a lot more confidence about being able to reopen more fully and to, to know that if you get sick, there's something that you can take that will, will most likely minimize its, its effect on you. And so a better public awareness of these things creates pressure on the science community in general, but the federal regulators in particular, whose job it is to make sure these things get to market as quickly as possible. And well, it's, it's not the default mode of regulators to move quickly, which is which is why putting some pressure on them is a good thing. Yeah, I mean, that makes uh, perfect sense. And, and, you know, this is sort of being trying to have foresight that, you know, we didn't have in many respects with respect to the outbreak. So, uh, you know, one of the the drugs that's mentioned as showing some promise is remdesivir, which is also in clinical trials. But it would make sense to ask the question and, as you say, apply the pressure by asking the question, OK, let's say remdesivir continues to show promise. And, you know, we know that uh, the clinical trials are that are ongoing are going to be done somewhere around here and we'll be able to make some sort of declarative statement somewhere around here. And then what's the process by which if if it was green lighted, if we say this actually could be a very effective treatment, that you get it widely distributed to the 50 states, to localities and so forth. So we don't have sort of a February testing CDC fiasco again. Yeah, that's right. And it's, you know, once people begin to understand more about what these things can do, and, and you, you mentioned remdesivir, and it, it has shown, it hasn't been run through the trials in the proper way, but the news that came out of that one University of Chicago study, which didn't have a control group, it showed some real promise on over 100 people who were, who were severely sick. Um, when, when we understand if something like that is showing enough promise that they're going to ramp up production and start making it available to hotspots, um, the public just needs to understand how that all works and who gets access to it and, and, and who doesn't and how it's administered so that we don't have a run on, on pharmacies and we don't have uh, the kind of confusion that we had with the whole PPE thing and the testing, which is still, still an ongoing problem. So I think that, you know, the, the risk in, in what I'm suggesting is that you start to get people's hopes up too early sure. um, and you sure. start to have people thinking, well, I'll be fine by July. 
Um, all of this stuff has to be delivered with the proper caveats, but it's really important for the public to understand what's going on. And, and I should say, you know, even since I wrote this, this piece, as I've talked with um, people in the community, I talked to the CEO of one of the nation's largest pharmaceutical companies last week who said, on this issue of therapeutics, the FDA has really stepped up its responsiveness, and I was glad to hear that. He said that they, they're kind of working in real time together. They're working in kind of an unprecedented, fast way. And that, that was good to, to hear. And then also, and I referenced this in this piece, my colleague at yeah, Yuval Levin wrote, wrote a re- really good piece on the role of the NIH and all of this a couple of weeks ago. And I linked through that in the op-ed you referred to. And I've noticed since then, just in the last few days, NIH has announced this new partnership they have with a number of different scientists around the country um, to, to coordinate the process of development, to, to kind of rank which drugs are showing the most promise and where should we be spending more of our time and resources and, and sharing information in real time which really just helps the whole project be coordinated, avoid more mistakes, and actually move more quickly. Um, I wanted to get what your uh, uh, reaction, anything you know on the, the other matter, and this came up in the briefing, too, with Dr. Hahn, and that's the antibody testing, the number of applications for, versus the number of emergency use authorizations and the question of accuracy. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's a, it's a complicated sort of technology, and, and I'm not the, the expert to dig into the, the micro details of it, but it is, it is very complex. There are, there are a few therapies uh, that also are, are, have been farther along, you know, designed for other types of things that are being adapted to, to this. Um, there, is, there is always this question of, of false positives and negatives when we do this kind of work that I know is a, is a real concern. Um, but I, I'm, I'm hopeful that, that they'll, they'll be able uh, – scientists have been doing this type of therapy for a long, long time. And so they, they understand the, the nature of this type of therapy, therapy vis-a-vis um, the kind of virus they're dealing with. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll be making some progress there. I'm not sure that anything is on the same timeline that remdesivir is in the antiviral camp, but there are a few that aren't, that aren't lagging too far behind that. Um, so, you know, we, again, we want to be cautious in, in, in how we get our hopes up. And there's still a lot that we don't know about this virus. I mean, we're going to be learning for, for years to come, both, you know, what the, the types of, of reactions, as you were deciding, that different countries and communities have, have made vis-a-vis what, what, how, how this thing actually um, uh, is transmitted from people that we're still still learning about, and also how it's going to be affected by warmer weather, which we're still not totally clear about, but hopeful that the warmer months will we'll see it recede at least somewhat, so it give us a little bit more breathing time to develop these, these treatments. Uh, but there's, there's still a lot that we don't know. Uh, but having said all of that, I think we can still be confident that the, uh, the scientists kind of leading the charge here know what they're doing. And, um, and when, they, when they sound hopeful, um, it's always a, a measured hope. And so we should, we should be encouraged by that. He is Ryan Streeter, the Director of Domestic Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. An interesting exchange with a friend of mine who's the mayor, local community in Illinois. We were talking about whether or not the mayor and city council in this particular community are going to move to impose a mask requirement. I don't know if they're going to do the $1,000 for not wearing a mask fine that El Dorado, Texas did a couple of weeks ago, actually, now. 
you've seen it around the country. I was struck by something he said to me. Basically, he's saying, look, um, there's a desire on the council to do something, a lot of pressure on the council to do something. Maybe we'll do a mask requirement for places where social distancing is difficult, like a grocery store, but we won't do it if you're just going to go jogging by yourself or outside for a walk or something. He uh, said, um, you know, seniors are clamoring. Those are pretty much disproportionately the ones who are going to communicate with their local officials. They're clamoring for the local village board to do something uh, because they want to feel safer. My question to him is, should you just respond and should the politicians just respond to people who want something done to feel safer? Or do you want to explain to them and have a conversation with them? Maybe there'll be some things they can explain to you, too, who, depending on who's keeping up with this and asking the right questions and consuming the right information. But have a dialogue with them. Let's not just do things for a placebo effect of feeling safer. Let's do things that actually make you safer rather than just responding to I don't feel safe. You should do this and then doing that because somebody said so. And you just want to sort of appease the complainant or as the saying goes, right, grease the squeaky wheel. How about how about engaging to say this is what we know, this is what we don't know. This is what we think makes sense and this is what what we think doesn't make any sense. How about considering uh, grocery stores minding their own affairs, uh, whether it's allowing only one or two people in at a time or not, and people can make the decision as to whether or not they want to patronize those stores that have different protocols in place. You know, sort of this all in it together and everybody has to behave the same way. It goes back to that, uh, what was it, really a parody from a woman, the Adley show that I played uh, in the first hour, all this contradictory information back and forth. And you know how you get into positions where you're saying one thing and doing one thing over here and saying another thing and doing the opposite thing over over there is by just being a leaf in the wind, moving in which direction, whichever direction you're blown. That's not leadership. It's not good public policy making. No safe spaces in the real world. And there should be no safe spaces on college campuses, social media platforms and in Hollywood for free speech and free thought. Again, uh, No Safe Spaces is available for a limited time at nosafespaces.com. Number one political documentary of 2019 put together by our friend Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla tells you how you can fight for free minds and free speech in a free America. And for Dan Prof Show listeners, for a limited time only, use the discount code SAVE25 for 25% off the uh, viewing of No Safe Spaces on the live stream to check out No Safe Spaces at nosafespaces.com and use the promo code SAVE25 for 25% off when you do. Thank you for joining us on another installment of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.